0: Hello, and welcome to the Called Out Cafe podcast. I'm your host, Doug Hooley, and this is episode number 13 in our series titled, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. It's based on the book I released this past fall, also titled, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. If you're new to the podcast, let me take the time to tell you that the book is available on Amazon.com in paperback hardcover, and Kindle editions. It'll take many more months to cover what's in the book on these podcasts, and we're covering tons of important stuff for you to think about, so you might want to pick up a copy. Also, before I get started, if you're listening to this on YouTube and you haven't already subscribed, please do so by clicking on the subscribe button on the lower right-hand side of the screen, and please also remember to click like if you got anything out of this episode. Now, let me ask you a question. What did Jesus choose Paul of Tarsus for? Was it to develop doctrine for the new, improved Judaism 2.0 religion Jesus envisioned? Or was it to establish a set of rules for a worldwide Christian franchise? After all, when practices in a church are questioned, isn't it the writings of Paul that pastors turn to when looking for guidance on how to do church? For example, when we talk about how to select church leaders, we turn to Paul's letters to his students and representatives, Timothy and Titus. When we consider how to conduct ourselves when assembled, we look to his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, and to his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12. Whether it's the rules surrounding communion, the giving of tithes and offerings, paying the pastor, discipline in the church, spiritual gifts or worship or baptism, Paul is your guy to turn to for getting church done right. At least, that's what I used to think, and unfortunately, many still do. Paul wrote much on these topics, but once again, when we set aside preconceived notions based on sermon upon sermon that we've heard, which have been packaged to support man's traditions of the last 1900 years, a completely different picture emerges. Most of Paul's letters were written in response to problems, where how to do or how to be the ecclesia is the topic. Paul only emphasized and applied the principles which Jesus had already established. Faith or belief in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. That's the rock the ecclesia is built on and the very reason that it exists. Walking in the hope of his return and all he promised. And living in love towards one another within the ecclesia. These are the things that called out were called to do by Jesus faith, hope, and love. Those words and the principles they represent are loudly proclaimed in Paul's writings as they are applied in different ways in different ecclesias. As Paul addressed the issues in each local ecclesia, he applied these principles to their individual situations. Of course, his doctrine regarding the things of God was always consistent, and as we would expect, he repeated many of the same things from one local cell of the called out to the next. 1 Corinthians 4.17 indicates much of what Paul taught in one place. He did indeed teach everywhere that he went. That scripture says this, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in the church as should have said everywhere in every church okay so however when it came to how the ecclesia should function as a local group you can't help but notice there are very few things that Paul could be accused of being a one size fits all kind of an apostle The model always remained based on the tenets of faith, hope, and love. Those three principles are the common denominators for how anything Paul said regarding the purpose or operation of the ecclesia could be categorized. But how those principles were applied to the individual local ecclesias differed according to specific circumstances. Paul is indeed a man who wrote a lot of things that we need to understand but we also need to understand what he didn't say that theologians have read into what he has written. So, let's take a look at what he's written. Uh, Let's start with Paul's letter beginning with the book of Romans. It won't be until chapter 9 when we come upon a topic that concerns our study regarding the ecclesia. So, I want to first look at Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. I'm going to read that for you. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that's by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it's written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. A rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame." Well, I've included this passage because of the emphasis placed on the importance of works today performed by churches. Many believe that it's good works that the church exists for until Jesus returns. Further, It's believed that participating in a particular good work is an indication of the status of one's soul. Sermons that support this idea cause other than Holy Spirit-provided motivation to do things in the name of Jesus, motivation that I call Christian Jedi mind tricks. Christian Jedi mind tricks include inducing feelings of guilt, wanting to belong, loyalty to the pastor, and peer pressure, among many others. Paul cautions the Romans against relying on works or acts of righteousness as if those things have something to do with one's status with God. Just as Jesus was a stumbling stone to Israel because they trusted in the law and works for salvation, Paul makes the comparison that it's still not by service, works, or missions that anyone will be declared righteous, and anyone who thinks otherwise will likewise stumble over Jesus. Well, next, let's talk about Romans chapter 11. What I want to emphasize from that passage is that the Ecclesia did not replace Israel. I just ran into this again this week. This is a, a big topic. Ecclesia did not replace Israel. If you aren't familiar with that chapter in Romans, chapter 11 in Romans, please take the time to read through it a couple of times. Read through it as many times as it takes to start getting a grasp on it. Study. Romans chapter 11. Well, a dangerous and popular doctrine in the church today is varying levels of belief that the church has replaced Israel. This is called supersessionism or replacement theology. I'm going to cover this topic in a later podcast when we're talking about the history of the church. But this doctrine is responsible for a high percentage of misunderstanding scripture today, especially prophetic scriptures. Paul makes it clear in chapter 11 of Romans that God is not done with Israel. Whereas those who hold to the doctrines of replacement theology say that it was Israel's disobedience that led God to divorcing and replacing them with the church. Paul says that it's because of Israel and their disobedience that it became possible for the called out Gentiles to receive mercy, just as Israel will receive mercy. The ecclesia is not Israel and should not be superimposed over the top of scriptures that clearly pertain to Israel as is extremely common today. Israel is still God's chosen physical people on this earth. After he rescues them at the end of this age, he's going to restore them and fulfill all the promises that he made to them. God is clearly not done with Israel. The bottom line is if you allow yourself to superimpose the church over the top of what God said to Israel, you're going to end up with all sorts of legalistic expectations of the church. Tithing is the low-hanging fruit example of this. Yes, of course there are things that the church and Israel have in common. We serve the same God, but the church is not Israel. Two different storylines within the greater story. So, now, moving on to Romans chapter twelve verses three to eight, let's take a look at spiritual gifts for the benefit of local bodies of the Ecclesia. I'm going to read this to you. This is Romans chapter twelve verses three to eight. For by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the numbers do not all have the same function, through many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving." the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul tells us that just like a body is made up of many parts in which each has its purpose, so is the ecclesia made up of many called out individuals, each having their own role He lists several of the more common functions that may be found amongst the called out. There's nothing indicating that the gifts and abilities that Paul lists is comprehensive. For example, he mentions other callings, such as evangelism, elsewhere in his letters. Rather, this is a list of the more common examples of the gifts of grace provided by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership— and acts of mercy. The gifts and abilities Paul lists here and elsewhere is not a checklist for a church to use to make sure that they're complying with the biblical church model. Paul does not say that a single person may not possess more than one of these gifts. It may be that in smaller communities of the ecclesia, the Holy Spirit endows people with more than one special ability or calling. Paul doesn't say that every different body of believers will receive the same gifts of grace or in the same proportion. Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit uses everyone differently according to the needs of each local ecclesia. This is a great caution for us. When the Holy Spirit is given individual zeal to serve Jesus in a particular way, they may be tempted to convince others that they should also be serving in that same way. Like a pastor who has the heart of an evangelist, for example, may always emphasize missions and evangelisms on Sunday morning. He may preach that we're all called to be evangelists. It may cause him to view and treat every passage of Scripture as though it's telling us the same thing. We should all be evangelists. His personal zeal, or area he's gifted in, may set the priority and dictate the activities of the whole church. This can lead to a great imbalance. It may lead to some suppressing their God-given gifts and abilities and be put to work evangelizing when that's not their gift or calling. It may be this hypothetical <laughs> pastor should be fulfilling the role of an evangelist himself and leave the pastoring to others who are actually gifted in that area. You know, a pastor is going to watch out for the broader needs of the body while individuals utilize their personal gifts. Well, from Paul's list in Romans 12, we can see that something as basic as service is something that called-out ones are specifically called to, and not everyone is called to that. That's a specific gift, and he's making the point here that we as individuals all have our different gifts. The same goes for giving generously and doing acts of mercy. Yet, these things are commonly viewed as one-size-fits-all responsibilities of everyone in most evangelical churches today. It's commonly emphasized that all Christians need to be evangelists and generous givers while they are also zealously serving others and accomplishing acts of mercy. When a sister or brother doesn't necessarily feel zealous towards such things, which the Holy Spirit has not given them a calling to, then they feel guilty. Others may judge them for their lack of enthusiasm or participation. That, unfortunately, is placing the yoke and burden of man on the shoulders of the elect. It's not the burden and the yoke of Jesus, which is light and easy and comes from the inside because of the work of the Holy Spirit. That right there is a lot to chew on, but we got to keep moving. So next, let's move on to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 13. That passage says this, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Paul often intertwines the three guiding principles which make up what I'm calling the prime directive of the ecclesia, faith, hope, and love. For example, in chapter 12, verse 9, Paul tells us to let our love be genuine. He illustrates how to do so by saying that we should outdo one another in showing honor to others, loving one another with brotherly affection. He tells us we're to hold firm to our faith, and protect it by abhorring what's evil and holding fast to what's good. And he tells us to rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. His advice for coping in that regard is to be constant in prayer. Patience, endurance, and remaining strong, those are all associated with the principle of hope. We see Paul alluding to the prime directive of employing faith, hope, and love throughout his letters. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13-14, to Paul wrote this, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, and be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Watching for the coming of Jesus while being brave and strong is living in hope. Standing fast in the faith is to maintain fidelity in what we believe. And of course, everything that's done is to be done in love. Well, now let's talk about weaker brothers in the ecclesia. Chapter 14 of Romans starts off by talking about one who is weak in faith. This begs the question, what does it mean when our faith or belief is weak? As if faith can be quantified Jesus accused people of having little faith, so can faith be quantified? I wrote about this extensively in my second book, False Christian Gods, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. To sum it up, the exact same Greek word pistis is translated as either faith or belief. How it's translated is according to the preference of the translator, but faith and belief have taken on two very different meanings in our time. As opposed to back then, faith and belief both mean pistis. Pistis is either one of those things. They mean the same thing when we read them in the Bible. Faith is not a mystical force like we think of it now. Faith is simply belief, nothing else. It's accurate to say that either faith or belief is to trust in something that is true. This is the primary way people look at faith incorrectly. People may look at faith in the same way that they look at the word confidence and how it's used. One who has little faith or confidence says, I'm not sure I can jump over that hurdle. Well, the person of great faith would confidently say, that next hurdle will be nothing to jump over. The person with a medium amount of faith or confidence might use language like, maybe I can jump over the hurdle. And those are all not correct ways to think about biblical faith. Authentic belief or faith is binary. You either believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, or you don't. If you're not sure, then you don't believe. While you're intellectually working out whether or not you believe... You remain in disbelief. There is no kind of believing. (laughs) The Holy Spirit's either illuminated someone, giving them the ability to see the truth and embrace it, or he is not. And the person will either accept the truth if they've been illuminated by the Holy Spirit, or they'll reject it. So, if faith or belief is binary, how then does one have more faith than someone else or a stronger faith Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says now belief is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen so according to Hebrews 11 verse 1 authentic belief or faith is based on a foundation of substance and evidence Substance and evidence come from gaining knowledge and understanding something. We increase our faith by increasing our knowledge and understanding. That can come by way of studying the Bible, or it may come by sitting under some solid teaching. And it comes through tempering our knowledge with life experience, which leads to maturity. The mature, knowledgeable, and experienced believer will not only know what the scripture says and technically means, but they may have experienced how that works in the real world, or they will have fit more pieces of the biblical puzzle together. The more mature and knowledgeable believer is the believer who has more faith, a stronger, broader, better grounded belief. A new believer who has only received the, quote, milk of the gospel, unquote, and nothing else, obviously does not have the quantity of faith as the one who's the called out one and uh, that's been saturated in the knowledge and understanding of scripture. Paul is calling on us to be gentle, patient, and extend grace towards one another. We're all at different places in our belief journeys. For example, regarding the topic of the weaker brothers. Some have grasped the biblical concept of grace more than others. Neither brother nor sister is necessarily wrong. One is just further down the road of understanding than the other. This does not mean we're not to speak the truth and love to anyone because we're worried that it might offend them. It does mean that we are not to intimidate or coerce or peer pressure or use some kind of superior argument on anyone and have them do something that they're convinced is a sin like contributing to a weaker brother or sister's willingness to sin can take on the form of them that believing that you are willing to sin so why shouldn't they it's like they're gaining your permission to do something they think is wrong Uh, Drinking alcohol is a quickly relatable example of this. Someone can be convinced drinking alcohol is an abomination to God because someone with good intentions quoted Scripture to them, Be ye not drunk with wine. So they've been successful in refraining from drinking, even though they used to enjoy an occasional adult bevy without any consequence. But then they run into me, Doug. A guy who believes so long as I don't drink alcohol to a point where it alters my behavior, my judgment, my motor skills, and it's not causing someone around me who has an addiction to alcohol to give in and drink, then it's of no consequence to have a glass of something that contains alcohol. Maybe we go out for lunch, and I think a, a glass of German lager sounds good with my pizza I ordered. (laughs) Bam! My friend who thinks drinking is a sin thinks, hey, if Doug can be naughty and drink alcohol, then why can't I? The result, this person thinks that drinking alcohol is wrong and naughty. Well, the result is that I've caused them to be naughty in their mind. Sin can be any willful behavior that we believe offends God and then we just go ahead and do it anyway James wrote to him who knows to do good and does it not to him it is sin that's found in James chapter 4 verse 17 so what I'm talking about here is not about alcohol but alcohol serves as a good example so let's keep with it a little bit A stronger, more knowledgeable, and mature brother may be convicted in the same way that the weaker brother is about alcohol. They think it's bad. But they think it's bad, the stronger brother, sister, thinks it's bad, for an entirely different reason than the weaker brother. Like, it's been the source of terrible pain and suffering for countless people. So, to them, love dictates that it's just not worth the risk of drinking it or supporting the alcohol industry. Whether they're right or wrong, the stronger brother who possesses more faith, they don't care if I'm drinking or not in regard to whether or not I'm sinning. They don't think it's a sin if I choose to do so. But they may still be concerned about my health and safety, and they simply just won't drink themselves because of those kind of considerations. But we're talking about the weaker brother or sister here. Someone who's more easily influenced because of their either physical addiction or their lack of faith or their lack of knowledge. That lack of faith meaning they're less mature, less informed, less discerning, less experienced belief. For those who fit this category, the loving thing to do is to be careful that we don't cause them to sin. This idea came home to roost in a big way during the COVID-19 pandemic. The church has divided over the issue of mandatory vaccines and mask wearing. I hate to bring up this subject. (laughs) One follower of Jesus, you know, it's my podcast. I guess if I hate to do it, I don't have to. But anyway, here I am. So one follower of Jesus they believe it's wrong to get the vaccine because they think to do so is not placing their trust in God for their health. Okay. So the next person may think that to take the government mandated vaccine is likened to what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were facing when they were told that they they had to bow down to a false God. All right. And another Christian believed that it, it might be a precursor for the mark of the beast And it's being used by an evil cabal, which is conditioning us to bow down to whatever they say. And so yet another, these are all different motivations for different Christians on why it's a sin to take the vaccine in their minds, right? And another Christian may refuse the vaccine on the moral grounds because they heard that fetal tissue somehow played a part in researching the vaccine, and they just can't have any part in that. Well, if a called out one is convicted by any one of these things, and they believe that it's a sin to take the vaccine, well, then the last thing that I should do is to try to compel them to do anything otherwise. If I were not convinced by any of their reasoning, and I still felt the freedom to take the vaccine, then Paul tells me, to keep it to myself (laughs) and don't rub the freedom I have in Jesus in their face. This is where I'm getting that from. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 14, verse 22, the following, Do you have faith? Keep it between you and God. Happy is the one who does not condemn himself for what he approves. Well, as Paul says, Happy or blessed is the one who has freedom in Jesus and doesn't have a guilty conscience for walking in that freedom. However, Paul also tells us that those who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weak and not seek to please his or herself. Listen to this from Romans chapter 15, verses 1-3. to 3. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. A common teaching of Paul, in fact, one that Paul himself wrote that he ordains in all the ecclesias, is that of what I call doing your own time. The way Paul put it in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 7, verse 17, was But as God has distributed to each one, As the Lord has called each one so let him walk Jesus buys us as is and has a customized plan for each one of us as individuals Jesus is the silver bullet solution for all where our eternal salvation is concerned however beyond salvation there is no rubber stamping No one-size-fits-all plan for our individual lives. Although there will be many commonalities, what our Master Jesus has set out for me to do may not resemble anything like He's expecting of you. I know this is far different than the thinking of things that's taught in church where we all need to pool our resources and focus on the mission that some committee or pastor has came up with. Although, because we love each other, we should support one another in our individual missions as we're called to. and those But those missions will remain our individual assignments. Okay, so moving on in Romans to chapter 14, let's talk about holy days. First, let me read you from Romans 14, verses 1 to 7. As for the one who is weak in faith welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may be, or excuse me, he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. Well, as though Paul foresaw the argument between those who say that Saturdays is the true Sabbath, and the day that should be set aside for God, and those who say that Sunday is that day, since the time of Jesus, and he tells us Paul here is telling us not to quarrel over that. Instead, his advice is that whatever we weigh in on that issue, and any religious issues like it, in his day it was like eating meat sacrificed to idols, that we should be fully convinced in our own minds. As we consider how Paul stressed unity later in this chapter, this allowance for diversity is interesting. You know, you do what God's convicted you of, I'll do what God has convicted me of. As the scripture I just read says, it's because we all individually stand accountable before our master, Jesus, and no one else. No rubber stamps, no silver bullets beyond Jesus, no blanket policies in regards to our individual walks with Jesus. When Paul said that one person, quote, esteems one day as better than another, unquote, he's talking about a day that they observe in honor of the Lord. Paul's not saying that everyone in the local Roman ecclesia needs to come to an agreement so they can agree on a time to get together for their weekly worship service. What day is the Lord's day? As though that is the day that people are supposed to go to church seems of little consequence for the Ecclesia at Rome, in Paul's opinion. He never suggested that such a day was connected to a regular worship service or gathering. Some of you are going to remember the movie Chariots of Fire. It's based on real historical events. In the story, Eric Little, who famously refused to run in the 1924 Olympic Games on Sunday because he was fully convinced that that was the Lord's day. He would not agree with me here on what I'm saying about this. But in Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul equates religious habits such as clinging to any day as though it were more holy than another as a weak and worthless practice. Go back and read that again. He likens such a thing to going backwards And living under the law. Just listen to this in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months, and seasons, and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul's questioning if you made a mistake even talking to these people because they just don't get it. They want to return to the elemental principles of the world. Amongst those principles is observing days, and months, and seasons, and years, esteeming one over another. Okay, so, let's move on again. Let's talk about unity. No one stresses the importance of unity amongst the ecclesia like the Apostle Paul. For those taking notes, let me list a few places for you where Paul talks about unity. For example, Romans 12, verse 16, and 14, verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse verses 1 to 6 Philippians 2 verse 3 and Colossians verse 3 verses 13 to 14 obviously unity is important to Paul so now let me remind you uh, or let me read for you um, what Paul says in Romans chapter since we're in Romans chapter 15 verse 1 to 7 it says this we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, as it is written, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. Well, it's funny how this passage in Romans, in which Paul encourages unity, immediately follows the section pertaining to how we're all individually accountable for our varying beliefs directly to Jesus. You see, along with unity, Paul also stresses, like no one else, that we are unique and that we don't have the same responsibilities, gifts, abilities, and purpose. He spent most of chapter 14 writing about how it's okay for our common belief in Jesus to be individually expressed, and it should be individually expressed according to our gifts and abilities. How is the Ecclesia to be unified amidst such diversity? Isn't diversity over our beliefs and how we're supposed to express them and worship God the reason why we have tens of thousands of denominations today? Well, it's not diversity over what we believe in that Paul says we should be okay with rather what should be okay with we should be okay with is how that belief is expressed or put into action in our lives as Jesus said it's the holy spirit provided belief that he is the messiah and the son of god which is the non-negotiable foundation of his ecclesia it's the belief that he is the risen savior who through his sacrifice made it possible for his followers to gain eternal life. We need not seek unity with those who are not convinced that those things are true. In fact, in the name of maintaining integrity of the beliefs of the ecclesia that it was founded on, Paul advises the ecclesia in Rome not to seek unity with those who do not hold to sound doctrine, but to avoid such people. Listen to this from Romans chapter 16 verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine, the teachings, which you learned, and avoid them. It's belief in the core gospel and our hope in Jesus, that we must be unified within the local ecclesia, because it's the undisputable truth of the gospel that the ecclesia is built upon. It's belief in Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, that the ecclesia is built upon. What allows unity, while we all individual react to the gospel in our own organic way, is love and respect for one another. Love is manifested in unselfish forbearance of one another's individual convictions, of how their beliefs of what Jesus expects of them play out. It's a love that requires submission to one another. Paul wrote about submission like that several times. The quintessential passage where Paul addresses submission and humility within the ecclesia is found in the little book of Philippians listen to this one. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The Apostle Peter also offered his guidance in the name of unity amongst the ecclesia. He wrote this, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to do this, that you may inherit a blessing. That's found in First Peter chapter 3 verses 8 to 10. Paul also wrote that race or nationality should not hinder unity in the Ecclesia. Colossians verses 3, uh, no, chapter 3, verse 11 says, There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. It's difficult to understand why there are churches that say they represent and follow Jesus while they cater to only certain races. Dividing based on race is clearly an anti-biblical practice the exception may be when a language barrier can't be overcome it's a shame to see those who claim to be called out from the world by christ himself dividing themselves according to skin color it's always the things of this world that causes such division like cultural and religious practices or historical racial tensions dare i say traditional racial tensions? This is no surprise given Satan is the god of this world and the author of many such cultural and religious practices and tensions. When the called-out ones divide over race, Satan wins. But you know what? I am not surprised that within a counterfeit organization such as the church, we find it there. I would hope that we don't find it within Jesus' ecclesia. Well, Paul suggests a formula for unity in Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 to 16. He says this: Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord." You know, please reread that a couple of times and see if the principles of love and faith and hope don't scream at you. That's where that's all coming from, uh, in the words of Paul. Well, specifically here, love is again the solution. How we organically respond to the gospel is going to vary in as many ways as there are people who believe in the gospel. What we must be of one mind and unified over is what the gospel is and showing love for one another as each individual responds to the gospel. The elect will never be united with unbelievers. According to Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 4, the minds of unbelievers have been blinded by the gods of this world to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul explains it's because of this that we're told not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness. Light and darkness, righteousness and lawlessness, wheat and tares, will never have unity with each other. Additionally, believers will never unify over matters of personal preference, you know, ones like praise choruses versus hymns. Or believers will never unify over doctrinal matters of theology, which involve speculating or using human reason or philosophy. This is a great principle. Where scripture is silent, we should be silent. Where it whispers or is unclear, we should approach what it means very humbly. Our relationship with each other in those places should be that of humility. Well, the ecclesia is called to unify over their faith in Jesus, in the hope of His coming and all He promised, and love for one another. Faith, hope, and love. I can't say them enough. These are the reasons the ecclesia should gather and what their focus should always be in everything they decide to do together. There will be no unity this side of Jesus' return for anything beyond this, at least not sustainably and not not for long. Enough said about that for now. Next, let's talk a little about giving money. I know, a favorite topic of us all. (laughs) Paul briefly refers to money matters every now and then in his letters. Normally, it's in relation to either supporting another evangelist or giving to those in the ecclesia who are in great need, such as elderly widows or those greatly affected by a famine. In Romans chapter 15, we see that there were some believers in the regions of Macedonia and Achaia who had taken up a collection for the poor and I'm not sure I said Achaia, okay, yeah, right? Yeah, that's how I've always heard it, and that's how it reads. <laughs> but anyway, the people in Macedonian Achaia they had taken up a collection for the poor amongst the saints in Jerusalem. They entrusted Paul with their gift, and let me pause for a second. The reason why I said that is because I recently uh, heard somebody becoming very critical of how another brother was. Uh, pronouncing uh, names in the Bible and uh, using some Greek words, mispronouncing them. And he was very critical saying, well, if they really knew their stuff, they'd be pronouncing them right. Well, the thing about that is, is I've heard so many experts pronounce so many things differently. That just doesn't matter. Okay. What matters is the content and what we're trying to to look at here. I'm sorry. I went down that rabbit trail that just kind of uh, proverbially ate my shorts this week when, <laughs> when I heard that. Anyway, uh, Macedonia and Achaia, the people there uh, entrusted Paul with their gifts, their, their financial gifts. Paul didn't use this incident or this giving of the Macedonians as an opportunity to tell the Romans that they need to do the same thing and take up a collection. He was only informing them of the Macedonians offering in the context of why he was going to Jerusalem. It wasn't like say, Hey, I'm, these other guys are giving money. And so, you know, you think you can kick in some money you really ought to be good Christians by, uh, by giving. No, he was just telling him the mission that he was on. He was telling him that the Macedonians offering, uh, was the reason that he was going to Jerusalem. Uh, Read this in chapter 15, verses 25 to 28 of, of Romans, of course. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered it to them, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So Paul relayed the motivation of those who gave the money. They, those from Macedonia and Achaia, were pleased to do it, and indeed, They owe it to them, the saints in Jerusalem who were in need. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. So, what's all that? Jerusalem was still well known for being the place where following Jesus originated, right? And everyone knew that he was and is the Jewish Messiah. In that way, Paul was saying that the Gentile believers in Macedonia and Achaia felt compelled to share with those in God's original spiritual family that they'd been adopted into. Not replaced, but adopted into. Every time we see this type of giving, it's in a loving response to a specific need within the ecclesia. Loving response. To a specific need within the ecclesia, it's not because tithes and offerings were regularly collected it's not the result of a church committee which brainstormed for ideas on how to give back to the community of course we know from the parable of the Good Samaritan that we are to love our neighbors as God puts neighbors and their needs in our path but the ecclesia is always the priority with taking care of others. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 tells us, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Again, this does not imply a regular giving program or a corporate giving program that we all do together. Being good to others, of course, can take on the form of slipping them a few bucks here and there to meet their needs, when they can't. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-15, to Paul writes that giving is not a command like it was under the law. Giving is voluntarily done, and it's a demonstration of the sincerity of one's love for another. He makes the point that easing others' economic burdens should not come at the cost of placing that same burden on the back of the giver. Burdens of those who are struggling should be relieved out of the, quote, abundance, unquote, of others in the ecclesia, that there may be equality. And that's a quote. Today, the idea of giving money in connection to our faith usually revolves around routine giving and entrusting the contributions to the church that we attend normally you know, we'll drop off our offering into a plate or a bag or a bucket during a set time in the service specifically designated for it. That money is then used for payments on the facility or rent or upkeep or utilities or pastor's salaries or staff salaries, whatever. It may also go for supporting missionaries or some specific outreach program of the church. It might go towards helping those in need in the local community or abroad. How the money is used is left up to those who decide on the church budget or missions committees or community outreach committees or whoever. Church members are programmed to think the regular collection of money is biblically based. It's a sanctified part of the weekly gathering. It's just not church unless we take up a collection. However the weekly offering like the weekly gathering itself is not biblically based church offerings are based on hundreds of years of traditions which in part were based on misused scriptures such as those that we're looking at here so is it wrong to take up a weekly collection no it's permissible it's uh, an unbiblical practice but it's okay to do what is biblical is taking up a collection for a uh, a temporary need a great sudden need you know we all oh we hear of something taking place somewhere and we respond to it Um, but the regular collection is not and uh, when they do take a collection it's not based on a tithe it's based on what each one feels like they can give out of their abundance anyway regarding Misuse scriptures. For example, in 1 Corinthians 16.1, many interpret what Paul wrote as a mandate to the ecclesia at Corinth to regularly give money every Sunday. This is one of the scriptures normally used by preachers in support of taking up a collection every Sunday, as well as support for meeting on Sundays. Let me read that to you. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come." Well, the offering Paul was ordering the ecclesia at Corinth to set aside, as he had already ordered the ecclesias in Galatia to collect, was again a specific collection for a specific temporary need of the saints. As you've read, Paul made several special one-off type collections for the saints living in Jerusalem, where famine and constant persecution made it difficult to make a living. The offering was to be set aside until Paul showed up, and then he would take charge of the money and deliver it to those who it was collected for. There is no indication that setting aside money was an ongoing practice. This was not an offering to pay anyone's ongoing salary. There were no salaries then to pay, or to make payments on a facility, because there were no facilities. This was not an offering for those outside the body of the ecclesia, or just setting it aside for some future unknown need. This was a specific offering for members of the ecclesia who were in need in a distant place, a one-time offering that Paul himself delivered. Paul was specific about setting aside money on the first day of the week for this purpose. Why? Because that was the day the Corinthians had church? (laughs) No, that's something we read into Scripture, because that's the day that we have church and take collections now. Setting aside money on Sunday was not necessarily because that was the day that they met. Sunday, the day following the Sabbath, was a normal work day for Jews and Gentiles alike. Sunday being a regular work day was the case until the first half of the fourth century. If the primal Christians, the the first Christians, did regularly gather on Sundays, the meeting was brief and took place either very early in the morning, before, or in the evening after work. The reason Paul specified Sunday is more likely that it was so what they could set aside would be taken out of what was earned by the end of the previous week. How much did they prosper last week and what was left over? That's what they would base the amount of money on that they set aside for their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. It was out of their abundance that had made it through the week. There were typically no church treasurers to entrust offerings to at this point in history, no banks to deposit the funds in for safekeeping. So rather than picturing the called out ones dropping off an offering in a plate that would be stored centrally, what we should probably picture is the individuals who made up the local cell of the Ecclesia in Corinth setting aside money themselves each week only as they prospered. Then, when Paul showed up, they would bring their money together and give it to him to pass on to those in Jerusalem. Enough about giving for now. So, finally, the word Ecclesia is not used in Paul's letter to the Romans until chapter 16. There, Paul does not refer to the ecclesia as one universal organization, rather he referred to them as separate cells when he wrote all the ecclesias of the Gentiles. He then specifically asked that the folks in Rome say hello to Prissa and Aquila and the ecclesia in their house. This doesn't necessarily mean that they hosted a regular meeting of the Ecclesia in their home. It could simply mean that the members of their household were called out ones, you know, their kids and their servants. Or it could mean that they had a regular meeting of the the Ecclesia in their home. We just don't know, and so should not assume that to be the case. We do know that when the primitive Ecclesia is gathered, it almost always was in private homes. There's another home church mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 15. That was the house of Nymphos that was having church in it. Okay, so that's going to do it for this episode of the Called Out Cafe. Man, I've given you a bunch to chew on. I hope that you're either like taking notes or going back through these things to revisit on your own and take a close look at because... There is some far different stuff than I know that I grew up with in the church uh, and listened to for the first 50 years of my life. Anyway, until next time, may God bless you richly and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries. And I'm on Instagram, at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at doughooley.com Or email me at doug at Doughooley.com. That's doug at d-o-u-g-h-o-o-l-e-y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long, and God bless.